0: Hello everyone, welcome back to the Doctrine, Dogma, and Davide podcast. My name is Davide Jonas Zerpi, and today we're going to be taking another look at the Second Vatican Council and discussing the question of whether or not salvation is possible outside of of the Catholic Church. And more importantly, we're going to be discussing whether or not the Second Vatican Council introduced any sort of change in the teaching on this subject. Now to sort of spoil the video a little bit for you guys, the short answer is no. There is no salvation outside of the Church, extra ecclesiam nala salus. This is a dogmatic definition of the Church, it is being reaffirmed both in the Council of Florence, the Council of Constantinople, as well as the Council of Trent, and yes indeed, the Second Vatican Council. But there are a few important caveats to understand about what actually places a person outside of the Catholic Church, about what it means to be outside of the Church and what it means for people who say, have never heard the gospel. And so I'm gonna start out with two sources from the pre-Vatican II church, one from Pius IX and then the second from St. Thomas Aquinas, in order to discuss sort of what the church has traditionally taught on this matter. And then we're gonna start diving into the documents of the Second Vatican Council to understand why some people accuse the Second Vatican Council of changing the church's teaching on this subject. So the first source I have here is from Pius IX in his encyclical, Quandor Confucian in paragraph seven, he states, quote, "...here too are beloved sons and venerable brothers. It is necessary again to mention and censure a very grave error entrapping some Catholics who believe that it is possible to arrive at eternal salvation, although living in error and alienated from the true faith and Catholic unity. Such belief is certainly opposed to Catholic teaching." There are, of course, those who are struggling with invincible ignorance about our most holy religion. Sincerely observing the natural law and its precepts, inscribed by God on all hearts, and ready to obey God, they live honest lives and are able to attain eternal life by the efficacious virtue of divine light and grace, because God knows, searches, and clearly understands the minds, hearts, thoughts, and nature of all. His supreme kindness and clemency do not permit anyone at all who is not guilty of deliberate sin to suffer eternal punishments. And so, Pius IX is articulating the traditional Catholic principle, one, that there is no salvation outside of the Church. Anyone who knowingly rejects the truth of the Catholic faith cannot be saved. However, he also articulates the traditional Catholic understanding of invincible ignorance. What this means is that if someone, through no fault of their own, has never come to an understanding of the truth of the one true holy Catholic and apostolic faith, then that person is not, you know, predestined to hell simply because they had no opportunity to learn of the divine revelation of the New Testament. And this, of course, comports with just natural reason. It certainly would not be just for a person to be condemned through no fault of their own. If I lived out in the wilderness, you know, around the time of Jesus Christ, and no missionary had ever brought the gospel to me, but I lived in accordance with the natural law that is inscribed on the hearts and the conscience of every man, then I wouldn't be culpable for the fact that I didn't know the gospel of Christ, because it had never been presented to me, and I had no reasonable means by which I could obtain it. And so if someone had no potential to come to know Jesus Christ, they are not culpable for rejecting the truth, and therefore they are not held responsible for the fact that they do not belong to the visible structures of the Catholic Church, and therefore they can still attain salvation. The church, or the visible structures of the church, were instituted by Christ for our benefit, but Christ himself is not limited by the visible structures and by the visible sacraments. But it's important to remember here that ignorance is not sufficient to attain salvation. It must be invincible ignorance. That is, ignorance that you could not reasonably eradicate or avoid. You had no reasonable way to come to knowledge in Jesus Christ. It's not simply a matter of, oh, I didn't know that the Catholic faith was the true faith. It has to be that you either, you know, you had severe mental disabilities and you had no capacity to really understand much of anything, or maybe you were illiterate and you could not read any uh, any books on the Catholic faith. And ultimately, it is God alone who judges whether or not a person is personally culpable for their unbelief, whether their ignorance of the Catholic faith is vincible or invincible. Though I would argue that in the modern western world invincible ignorance is actually quite rare, because most of us walk around with a smartphone in our pockets. We walk around with the capability of accessing not just the catechism of the Catholic Church, but also a great many theologians and apologists and plenty of people spreading and sharing the Catholic faith online. And so I think it's kind of hard to argue that anyone who has access to the internet is invincibly ignorant of the Catholic Church because they have a reasonable means of coming to knowledge of the Catholic faith. But ultimately it's something that God alone can judge. And then the second citation I have from before the Second Vatican Council is An article from the Summa Theologica from St. Thomas Aquinas, this is Article 1, Part 3, Question 68, he states, quote, I answer that. The sacrament of baptism may be wanting to someone in two ways. First, both in reality and in desire, as is the case with those who are neither baptized nor wish to be baptized, which clearly indicates a contempt of the sacrament in regard to those who have the use of free will. Consequently, those to whom baptism is wanting thus cannot obtain salvation, since neither sacramentally nor mentally are they incorporated in Christ, through whom alone salvation can be obtained. Secondly, the sacrament of baptism may be wanting to anyone in reality, but not in desire. For instance, when a man wishes to be baptized, but by some ill chance he is forestalled by death before receiving baptism, and such a man can obtain salvation without being actually baptized on account of his desire for baptism, which desire is the outcome of faith that worketh by charity, whereby God, whose power is not yet tied to the visible sacraments, sanctifies man inwardly. Hence Ambrose says of Valentinian, who died while yet a catechumen, quote, I lost him whom I was to regenerate, but he did not lose the graces he prayed for. Close quote. And so Saint Thomas Aquinas is once again affirming baptism by desire, that you need not necessarily be baptized by water in order to be saved, but also reiterating the principle that God's power is not limited by the sacraments or limited to the sacraments, that the visible church was instituted for our sake and is not a manifestation of the limitations of God's saving power. Someone who desires baptism or someone who is invincibly ignorant but lives in accordance with the natural law can still be saved. So now the question becomes you know, what does the Second Vatican Council say? Does the Second Vatican Council contradict this? Does it affirm it? And the Second Vatican Council unequivocally affirms this traditional teaching of the Catholic faith. In Dignitatis Humanae, paragraph 1, it states, First, the Council professes its belief that God himself has made known to mankind the way in which men are to serve him, and thus be saved in Christ and come to blessedness. We believe that this one true religion subsists in the Catholic and Apostolic Church, to which the Lord Jesus committed the duty of spreading it abroad among all men. Thus he spoke to the apostles, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have enjoined upon you. On their part, all men are bound to seek the truth, especially in what concerns God and his church, and to embrace the truth they come to know and to hold fast to it. Additionally, Lumen Gentium states in paragraph 14, quote, this sacred council wishes to turn its attention firstly to the Catholic faithful. Basing itself upon sacred scripture and tradition, it teaches that the church, now sojourning on earth as an exile, is necessary for salvation. Christ, present to us in his body, which is the church, is the one mediator and the unique way of salvation. In explicit terms, he himself affirmed the necessity of faith and baptism, and thereby affirmed also the necessity for the church. For through baptism, as through a door, men entered the church. Whosoever, therefore, knowing that the Catholic Church was made necessary by Christ, would refuse to enter or to remain in it, could not be saved." And so, once again, Lumen Gentium is affirming the fact that there is no salvation outside of the Catholic Church and affirming that no one who knowingly, who willingly, who culpably rejects the Catholic faith can be saved. But if that's the case, then why do so many people allege that the Second Vatican Council changed the Church's teaching on this? Why are there so many people who accuse the Second Vatican Council of saying that people of false faiths can be saved, that false faiths are a means of salvation for people. And there are a few passages that I think are taken out of context and misunderstood, without reading it in the proper light of the traditional teaching of the Church, and quite frankly in light of the firm affirmations of the Council itself, that there is no salvation outside of the Church, and only those who are invincibly ignorant can possibly be saved if they are not incorporated into the body of Christ, which is the church. The first passage I wanna read comes from Lumen Gentium, paragraph one. It states, quote, although many elements of sanctification and of truth are found outside of its visible structure, these elements as gifts belonging to the church of Christ are forces impelling towards Catholic unity. And people will say, oh, the council is saying that false faiths have elements of sanctification to them, and therefore people can be saved through their false faiths. But I think that that's a, severe misreading of this passage. You know, it is true that false faiths do have elements of truth and elements of sanctification. Take, for instance, a person who, let's say you live in the Middle Ages and you grow up in a Lutheran community and you've never even heard of the Catholic Church. You're not even aware that there is an apostolic church in existence. You've never met a Catholic in your life. All you've known is the Lutheran faith. All right. And let's just say that you reject the Lutheran faith. You say there's no way that a man could have possibly risen from the dead. Well, a person like that could not be saved, not because they're rejecting a false faith, but because they're rejecting a truth of a false faith, because they're rejecting what is true in the faith. And in that sense, they are rejecting the elements of salvation that are within the Lutheran faith. And so the fullness of truth and the fullness of sanctification, the fullness of salvation, is a gift belonging to the Church of Christ. But there are elements of that that exist in false faiths that somebody, even if they have invincible ignorance of the Catholic faith, if they reject what is true in the faith that they know, then they still cannot be saved because they are rejecting what little sanctification and what little truth is found in those false faiths. This by no means states that one person could know the Catholic faith, reject it, and still be saved by the elements of sanctification in their false religions. That's not what the council is saying here. The second passage people will bring up concerns, you know, uh, other Christians, such as Protestants or the Eastern Orthodox uh, Christians who are in a state of heresy or schism with the Catholic Church but still united to us in baptism. In paragraph 15, Lumen Gentium states, The Church recognizes that in many ways she is linked with those who, being baptized, are honored with the name of Christian, although they do not profess the faith in its entirety or do not preserve the unity of communion with the successor of Peter. For there are many who honor sacred scripture— taking it as a norm of belief in a pattern of life, and who show a sincere zeal. They lovingly believe in God the Father Almighty and in Christ, the Son of God and Savior. They are consecrated by baptism in which they are united with Christ. They also recognize and accept other sacraments within their own churches or ecclesiastical communities. Many of them rejoice in the episcopate, celebrate the Holy Eucharist, and cultivate devotion towards the Virgin Mother of God. They also share with us in prayer and other spiritual benefits. Likewise, we can say that in some real way they are joined with us in the Holy Spirit. For to them too he gives his gifts and graces whereby he is operative among them with his sanctifying power some indeed he has strengthened to the extent of the shedding of their blood in all of christ's disciples the spirit arouses the desire to be peacefully united in the manner determined by christ as one flock under one shepherd and he prompts them to pursue this end mother church never ceases to pray hope and work that this may come about She exhorts her children to purification and renewal so that the sign of Christ may shine more brightly over the face of the earth. Now, some people will allege that this is saying, oh, Protestants and schismatics, they are saved by their heretical churches. But once again, that's not what the church is saying here. There are indeed graces that come from the elements of truth in Protestantism, as well as in, say, the Eastern Orthodox. There are still spiritual goods and benefits that God grants to people outside of the Church, as he seeks to lead them to the fullness of truth and to the fullness of unity in the Catholic Church. And it affirms, once again, that all Christians are called to be one flock under one shepherd, under the headship of the See of Peter. Next, we're going to look at what the Second Vatican Council says about the Jewish faith. Firstly, we have Lumen Gentium in paragraph 16. It states, quote, Finally, those who have not yet received the gospel are related in various ways to the people of God. In the first place, we must recall the people to whom the Testament and the promises were given and from whom Christ was born according to the flesh. On account of their fathers, this people remains most dear to God, for God does not repent of the gifts he makes nor of the calls he issues. Additionally, Nostra Aetate in paragraph 4 states, As Holy Scripture testifies, Jerusalem did not recognize the time of her visitation, nor did the Jews in large number accept the gospel. Indeed, not a few opposed its spreading. Nevertheless, God holds the Jews most dear for the sake of their fathers. He does not repent of the gifts he makes or the calls he issues, such as the witness of the apostle. In company with the prophets and the same apostle, the church awaits the day known to God alone, on which all peoples will address the Lord in a single voice and serve him shoulder to shoulder. Now, some people will allege that the Second Vatican Council is saying that, you know, the Jewish people, again, can culpably reject the Catholic faith, but because they hold to the Old Covenant that they are therefore saved by the Old Covenant. That is not what the Second Vatican Council is saying here. All it is saying is that the Jewish people are dear to Christ because of the covenants he made for them. And it's important to remember the fact that Jesus, that God, cannot revoke any agreement that he made, any covenant he made. God keeps his promises, always. He did not abolish the old law, he brought it into fulfillment. He did not abolish the old covenants, he brought them into fulfillment. Now, that doesn't mean that Jewish people who hold to the old covenant can be saved by the old covenant if they knowingly reject the truth of the new covenant. After all, we are bound to follow the latest covenant. But that doesn't mean that the old covenants are revoked. And just as Lamentations and Nostratate says the people who were once dear to God cannot be entirely reviled and forsaken by him in fact no people are entirely reviled and forsaken by God because God loves all of his children and yearns for all of them to be united with him in heaven and so in that way he uses once again the old testament as a means of bringing about the New Testament and the conversion of all people to him, so too he continues to use the promises of the Old Testament in order to try to draw the Jewish people closer to him in the New Covenant and seeks to bring them into the Church of Jesus Christ. Next, we're going to look at the Second Vatican Council's approach to the Muslim faith. Lumen Gentium in paragraph 16 goes on to say, But the plan of salvation also includes those who acknowledge the Creator. In the first place among these there are the Muslims, who professing to hold to the faith of Abraham, along with us adore the one and merciful God, who on the last day will judge mankind. Additionally, Nostra Aetate, paragraph three, states, quote, The church regards with esteem also the Muslims. They adore the one God living and subsisting in himself, merciful and all-powerful, the creator of heaven and earth, who has spoken to men. They take pains to submit wholeheartedly to even his inscrutable decrees, just as Abraham, with whom the faith of Islam takes pleasure in linking itself, submitted to God. Though they do not acknowledge Jesus as God, they revere him as a prophet. They also honor Mary, his virgin mother. At times, they even call on her with devotion. In addition, they await the day of judgment when God will render their deserts to all those who have been risen from, up from the dead. Finally, they value the moral life and worship God, especially through prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. Here, many people will object to the characterization of Muslims as worshiping the same God as Christians, because they worship the God of Abraham. Now here, uh, essentially the complaint boils down to the Muslims do not recognize the Trinitarian nature of God. And because they do not recognize Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit as God, and worship only God the Father, that therefore their God is not the same God that the Christians worship, that they are worshiping a false God, a different God. And I think I, I wanna dwell on this point just a little bit, because the Jewish people of the Old Testament Also, only knew of God the Father. They did not know God the Son, and they did not know God the Holy Spirit. That only came about with the coming of the New Testament and the New Covenant. But at the same time, they still had the first commandment, I am the Lord your God, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And the Jewish people certainly could not have been commanded to worship a false god, even though their understanding of the god was incomplete, because they knew only God the Father. And so ultimately, the Jewish people, as well as the Muslims, they don't worship a different God from us. They simply do not have a complete understanding of the true nature of God. They worship the true God, but they don't worship him according to how he has ordained for Him to for himself to be worshipped. And they don't worship God in the fullness of knowledge of him. They don't understand that God is three persons in one God, that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit but that doesn't mean that they are not worshipping the same God. If I could use an analogy, imagine if I have sort of an aerial view of a large house, and I can see the whole house, but then someone can see only uh, the side of the house. They're looking at, at just one wall of the house. We're both looking at the same house, but I, from my sort of aerial perspective, can see the whole house, whereas the person along the side can only see part of it. That doesn't mean we're not looking at the same house one of us just has a more complete picture of it a similar case is true for jews and muslims worshiping god they do not have a complete picture of god but they are still looking and they are still praying to the same god that we christians do and once again this by no means that a muslim who culpably rejects the catholic faith can be saved and then finally we have nostra etate addressing the status of hindus and buddhists Nostra Aetate, paragraph 2, states, quote, Religions, however, that are bound up with an advanced culture have struggled to answer the same questions by means of more refined concepts and a more developed language. Thus, in Hinduism, men contemplate the divine mystery and express it through an inexhaustible abundance of myths and through searching philosophical inquiry. They seek freedom from anguish of our human condition, either through ascetical practices or profound meditation or a flight to God with love and trust. Again, Buddhism, in its various forms, realizes the radical insufficiency of this changeable world. It teaches a way by which men in a devout and confident spirit may be able either to acquire the state of perfect liberation or attain by their own efforts or through higher help, supreme illumination. Likewise, other religions found everywhere try to counter the restlessness of the human heart, each in its own manner by proposing ways comprising teachings, rules of life, and sacred rites. The Catholic Church rejects nothing that is true and holy in these religions. She regards with sincere reverence those ways of conduct and of life, those precepts and teachings which, though differing in many aspects from the ones she holds and set forth, nonetheless often reflect a ray of that truth which enlightens all men. Indeed, she proclaims and must proclaim Christ the way, the truth, and the life in whom men may find the fullness of religious life, in whom God has reconciled all things to himself. And so here, people will especially object to its teaching on Buddhism, because it states that Buddhism teaches a way by which people can attain supreme illumination by their own efforts or some higher help, that Buddhism is somehow a path to actual supreme illumination. But it is not Affirming that this is true. It is describing the buddhist belief. It says that this is what buddhism teaches not that this is Necessarily true, and so it states buddhism teaches a way by which men can obtain Supreme illumination even though that teaching is not necessarily truth in a similar way to when Pius the in his encyclical condemning Communism described communism as a system which seeks to create a workers utopia It was not an endorsement of communism's teaching that a worker's utopia can be brought about by human efforts. Just as in Nostra Aetate here, the council is describing what Buddhists believe and affirming that the Catholic Church rejects nothing that is true in these religions, but rejects only that which is false and incompatible. And so when a Buddhist recognizes that the material world is insufficient and that, that it does not ultimately bring us happiness. They are correct, and that belief is to be preserved, and is to be treasured, in fact. But when they go so far as to say that the material world is the cause of all suffering, that desire is the cause of all suffering, rather than uh, a holy gift that God gave to us, and that the pleasures of the world were here for us to enjoy and are actually good, when enjoyed in their proper state and in their proper moderation. That's when they drift into error, and that is the belief that the Church must condemn. And so here, the Church is trying to describe with charity the beliefs that false faiths hold, and affirm the fact that where those beliefs do not contradict the Catholic faith, that the Catholic Church will revere and esteem those aspects of these false religions while only condemning those that are completely incompatible. And this does sort of reflect the tradition of the church of sort of Christianizing paganism, Christianizing pagan practices. You know, recently when I was doing research on my video on St. Patrick, I learned that the Celtic cross, which is basically a cross with a circle superimposed behind it, It is actually like that was a pagan symbol, a Celtic symbol that was basically he put the cross over it, that the circle was a pagan symbol for the sun god. And so St. Patrick combined the pagan symbol with the cross in order to make it more familiar to the Celtic people as he was evangelizing Ireland. So too we have things like the Yule time tree that was turned into the Christmas tree. Both Christmas and Easter, the holidays were picked to replace pagan holidays. The Stations of the Cross, the 14 Stations of the Cross, are really beat for beat similar to the 14 Trials of Horus, and so there is a, a common belief that Christians came and Christianized the 14 trials of Horus and turned them into the 14 stations of the cross in order to, to sort of like Christianize what was benign or even good about the pagan practices and make them Christian and bring them to the fullness of truth whilst preserving anything that is not antithetical to the faith. This is a long-standing Christian tradition and is something that we certainly should not abandon. And then once again, at the end of paragraph 15, Lumen continues to affirm, quote, "...those also can attain to salvation who, through no fault of their own, do not know the gospel of Christ or his church, yet sincerely seek God and, moved by grace, strive by their deeds to do his will as it is known to them through the dictates of conscience. Nor does divine providence deny the helps necessary for salvation to those who, without blame on their part, have not yet arrived at an explicit knowledge of God and with his grace strive to live a good life. Whatever good or truth is found amongst them is looked upon by the church as a preparation for the gospel. She knows that it is given by him who enlightens all men so that they may finally have life. But often men deceived by the evil one have become vain in their reasonings and have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, serving the creature rather than the creator. Or there are some who living and dying in this world without God are exposed to final despair. Wherefore to promote the glory of God and procure the salvation of all these and mindful of the command of the Lord preach the gospel to every creature, the church fosters the missions with care and attention. So once again, even as the church, Uh, affirms and recognizes the fact that false faiths do have elements of truth and elements of goodness that can be preserved as we seek to bring everyone into the church. It still affirms that only those who through no fault of their own do not know the fullness of the truth of the Catholic faith can attain salvation. And that oftentimes these conditions are not met. Oftentimes, People are vain in their reasonings. They don't actually take the question of whether or not the Catholic faith is true seriously. They are too lazy or they can't be bothered to look into it or to investigate it. Because once again, ignorance is not sufficient. It must be invincible ignorance. And you just never bothered to look into the matter of religion. You never bothered to look into what the Catholic Church teaches. That does not constitute invincible ignorance. And so people deceived by the evil one and distracted by the vain pleasures of the world are led astray. And so the church fosters the missions and goes out and preaches the gospel in order that these people might be saved. Because it is far easier to be taught the true faith than to have to go out and find it on your own. And that is the reason why we evangelize, to save souls. So in conclusion, no, there is no salvation outside of the church. There is only the possibility of being saved for those who through no fault of their own were not able to reasonably come to knowledge of the truth and who still live in accordance with the dictates of conscience and the natural law. So I hope you found that video enlightening. I hope you found it spiritually fruitful. If you like the video, be sure to like, comment, do whatever it is the people of the internet do. And I will see you all next week. God bless you.